I rented a house for a year one time on the very edge of a village and I met friends by dint of passing up and down with a man who lived on a small holding down the road. I was meant to be writing a book, but I wasn't able. And so I walked and waited for the words to come back to me. I'd been paid in advance and the weight of expectation attached to it had crippled me. I'm Kit Duval, author of My Name is Leon and The Trick to Time. On tonight's book show, I'm speaking to Donald Ryan. He's the author of The Spinning Heart, The Thing About December, All We Shall Know, and the short story collection, A Slanting of the Sun, and his most recent book, From a Low and Quiet Sea. I really admire Donald's work, and I wanted to speak to him about the craft of writing, about what life's like behind the scenes as a writer, and also how our real lives inspire our work. And so I invited him into my home. Okay, Donald, let's come in here. It's my reading room. And there's some sofas you can have a seat over there. And these are the books that have inspired me the most. Um, lots of them, in fact, most of them, are the classics that I've um, read over many, many years. This is the coolest reading room I've ever seen. It's actually the same size as my house. <laughs> So we were just on stage um, at a literary festival talking about our different experiences of what makes a writer and how we've become writers. And we both have this sense of being outsiders. And that sense of being an outsider gives you the opportunity to observe situations and to record situations, even if it's only in the head. And certainly from my experience growing up as half Irish in England, half Caribbean in England I always had that sense of being an outsider always had that sense of looking in on the English experience my father came to Birmingham when he was about 22 1956 and my mother came when she was a child but my grandparents completely immersed themselves in the Irish community and so I was always the Irish girl at the West Indian Community Centre I was always the West Indian girl at the Irish Community Centre, always had that sense of being slightly outside, slightly removed. Did you ever have that? Yes, and actually it's quite embarrassing to talk about it because it's so untraumatic my, my, where my dislocation comes from because for me it was moving from a house where I could see the hill that my father grew up on and where I knew that the farm my mother grew up on was a few miles out the road to a house four miles away where I could still see both those places from the back window. <laughs> but that very small and very short distance actually became kind of a, a chasm. And it did have an effect to me. And I had a wonderfully happy and loved and costed childhood. Continued to have it when we moved. We moved from a village to a town. And I moved schools at the age of nine. And I never quite felt as though I fully fit in afterwards. And I think it's that's where I started to become slightly an observer of events and of people and of having this kind of sense of detachment and dislocation very slight and were you treated differently no I mean I remember I've, I, I've literally have no bad memories of childhood at all but when I look back I know that that move from the village to the town actually put me slightly in the outside of things this is the start of a short story called Tommy and Moon Tommy was up on 80, I'd say, though he never spoke of his age. He was sprightly and lean, and he had most of his hair, and he kept it carefully combed. 
and he tried never to show me his pain, but I felt it. And he told me things in fits and starts across an ancient table in the kitchen of the cottage his grandfather built. He was an only child. His parents hadn't met before the wedding day. It had all been arranged as a favour. A man met his father the evening before he got married as he wheeled his bicycle up the long hill on his way home from town, a borrowed suit folded on his carrier. You're getting wed tomorrow, I hear. I am. Who is she? I don't know. They call her Laurie. They stayed married for fifty years and died not a week apart. But that story did the rounds for generations. They call her Laurie, men would say, stretching out his mother's name. And they'd roar with laughter. Tommy would overhear the telling of the story at the odd time. And his insides would burn and the backs of his eyes would prickle. And he'd picture his mother and father and their quiet fondness, their easy love for one another. Was it an accident, he wondered, how they loved one another? Or was it God put them together? Or whatever power is there behind the blueness of the sky and the blankness of eternity? I wanted to talk to you about the craft of writing. Are you a plotter or are you the sort of person that Stephen King described where you should have just enough light to see the road ahead and no more? I think that actually, yeah, because I remember reading in On Writing, Stephen King said that he ruined the novel Insomnia because he plotted it so forensically and so methodically and he was so intent on making every single sentence count towards the next plot point. And he ruined it. And I used to do that all the time. The reason that writing just felt like such work and it felt so against the grain for me for years was because I was always intent on getting to a very specific place and now I kind of have an ending in mind and work towards it and it's kind of more organic but I know that loads of writers get a real relief from having a story planned out paragraph by paragraph you yes. know and because then it's done it, it feels to them as though the really hard work of having the idea is done and now the easy thing is just to create the story and, and that would be me so I plot it to death. So I would have scenes on cards. I would have a spreadsheet. I would have character studies. I write character studies for all of my characters. To me, that's so much easier than sitting down and thinking, where will it take me? Because it might take me down a cul-de-sac. And I'd be so scared about spending 20,000 uh, words on a cul-de-sac. That's a real fear, all right. Yeah, yeah. it really is. We advise people to kill their darlings and not to hold on to everything and think that everything is, 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 is worth being published. But it's so hard to delete 20,000 words or to, or to write it and keep it in the file somewhere and never use it. But sometimes you have to go through that and just you say, feck it, it's not working. One thing that Maya Angelou said was that when inspiration hit you, it should find you at your desk. It should find you ready to receive it. In other words, that you should show up at your desk, ready to write every day. And then some days you're going to write rubbish and then other days it's going to come to you straight away. Is that what you do with your writing routine? I would love if that were the case, to be honest, because just actually just in the last few days, I've been having these really strong ideas for a new novel and I've been in the wrong place at the wrong time every single time. It's been very frustrating, but you're so right because I always say to people, to be a writer, there are two things you have to do you have to read and you have to write and you have to try to write every day. You have to be able to sit down and write 
what feels like rubbish and what feels like just stuff that you're grinding out it just doesn't really make sense because eventually you'll strike a note you know and it'll start to come right for you but it's it's so surprising how many people want to be writers and just never write and I find people saying with a kind of pride oh, I don't read yeah. you know, but, and still want in, in, in the next breath will say but I want to be a writer there's no other way of learning your craft there's no other apprenticeship you can do really it's like being a chef and never going out for a meal <laughs> You know, why would you think that you can produce this thing that you cannot consume, that you have no idea what what is a good sentence, what sounds like a good sentence, or reading something that makes you cry and think, how have they done that? Yeah, for sure. When I, Whenever I read with jealousy very often, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how have they done that? And I have to track back. And I think that's what you get from reading. You learn the technicals. I mean, you shouldn't be reading to get the technicals from it but you do absorb them like by os- osmosis I think. yeah for sure and the thing is I mean I hear people say oh I think it's too late you know I should have started reading when I was much younger but I mean really it's never it never ever never. is there are people probably who have a kind of predisposition towards using language in a, in a certain way that you know is beautiful yes you know but it, it'll never come out that, that predisposition will never make itself evident unless they can actually you know, make language malleable and pliable by reading, by immersing themselves in language. Certainly in the Irish community I grew up in, there were men, particularly men, who would have a drink and tell you a story that was like reading. They were like reading out. Clearly they'd said it a hundred times. But it was beautiful. And the oral tradition of storytelling, I mean, it is like writing. It's just the way that stories were transmitted years ago when people couldn't read and write. Absolutely. I remember coming from um, an event in Waterford with my dad. He'd, he'd come with me and the drive back was about, I suppose, two hours back to Nina. And he told me the story of a friend of his, the story of this man's life from childhood to his death. And it was, I felt as though I had read a really riveting novel at the end of the, the journey. And we, I, I don't think I spoke for the whole journey. And dad just told me the story in a very easy manner, you know, and the funny things and the tragic things, you know, and he just... He was reminiscing, but he gave me the story. It was a really clear arc to the story. It was just amazing. We're all storytellers. You know, you go to the hairdresser and someone says to you, what happened on your holiday? You don't say, oh, it was okay. You say, well, we got there at midnight, but it was freezing cold. And then we did this and then we did that. And then you always put in something tragic that happened. And then you talk about, and in the end, we came home and we'd had a good time. We all still, even if it's three acts in three sentences, we all tell stories. It's just working that into a novel and that tricky middle which you must know which is like what am i doing here where am i going with this novel even when you plot it like i do but you're so right we i mean I, I think absolutely everybody loves telling stories people get huge enjoyment from recounting something and retelling something it's a real it's a, and it's an impulse we all have and it's what makes us human yes and it's so it's, we need it so badly and it's and in a way it's so unnatural because stories don't exist they're not real things like we, 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 we impose an arc on events to make them to seem as though they make sense. The other thing about um, those events and looking at events that are happening to you is what Graham Greene said, is that good writers have a bit of flint in the eye, meaning that even as you're undergoing difficult circumstances or happy circumstances, whatever it is you're undergoing, you've got an eye to describing it or you've got an eye about what's happening to you. And I got divorced three years ago under really difficult circumstances. And I was distressed. I was really upset. I was crying. I'd be crying on my bed. I'd be crying walking down the road. 
And all the time I'm thinking, mm, what does this feel like? How would I describe this? And if you've got a lump in your throat from crying, and there's a really good bit in your book, in fact, I'll, I'll get you to read it in a minute, where you describe actually having a lump in your throat from crying, because it's a phrase, isn't it, that we say, mm. oh, I've got a lump in my throat. Well, actually, you have got a lump in your throat. And it reminded me of a passage that you wrote um, about Lampy when he's really upset. And do you want to just read that? Sure. This is where um, Chloe breaks it off at him in McDonald's car park. He thought about their spot, their mountaintop, up past the graves of the Leinster men, where it sat after doing it for the last time, and he'd held her hand, stroking the back of it with his thumb, wondering at the feeling of the narrow bones beneath her skin, not knowing what was in store for him, what was coming, how fragile it felt to him, how perfect. He wished that he could see them for a second, see her from the inside out, inhabit her, possess her completely. He loved her so much, that was all, he loved her. She asked him could they drive into Limerick as far as McDonald's. He still couldn't figure out why she did that, why she chose Mickey D's car park to rip his heart out. Had she planned on eating first, Mickey D's was fucking ruined for him now. It's not working with me being in college in Dublin, she said. It's not fair on you. We'll still be friends, always. And he said nothing to her for a long while, because he couldn't trust his voice. There was a lump in his throat, an actual lump, and it was blocking his windpipe, it seemed, because he was having trouble breathing properly. His heart was beating hard and irregular in his chest, and the colour was gone from the front of McDonald's. The yellow M was grey, and the lights shone white, and every car in the car park was black. And he closed his eyes tight, and when he opened them again, the world was in colour, and he got a hold of himself. So good. That is so good. It captures so perfectly when you're distressed and you feel like your world has ended. The colour's gone out of the McDonald's sign. It's, and it's so funny, but so tragic. How did you write that? How, what did you use to write that? The heartbreak I felt myself when I was that age, and these things happen, and you feel that the world has ended. You know, and, and you do have a physical reaction to, to that kind of hurt because things can be so magnified. And of course, and it's, that doesn't mean it's, it's any less real. It is a real hurt and a real pain at the time, but you, you kind of have a sense at the time even it's, this is going to wear, wear out, you know, this, this won't be forever. But as you said, I mean, it's that, that, I suppose that Flint, I mean, we were saying earlier about being slightly removed and never quite fitting in if you're an artist. You're never quite being completely in the centre of things because when you are in the centre of things, you're so much a part of it, you can't be detached and objective about it. That can be a way of surviving things that are really traumatic, that could actually take you down. You know, the fact that you can be slightly removed and slightly detached and watch it from slightly an observer standpoint. Yes, I think that's that's really true. And yet be trying to capture it all the same to regurgitate it later. If, is there anything in any of your books that's actually happened to you that you've been able to regurgitate into one of your novels and experience from one of your books? Yeah, I think it happens. There are a good few points. Um, there, there have been a good few points in my writing life where I've stopped writing and thought, oh God, can I, can I do this now? But I, I do, and I, but, but I have to practice what I preach in that respect because I, I say to students of writing all the time, you have to give yourself full permission. You have to give yourself complete license when it comes to the world and the people and the things and the actions in it. Because as my late father always said, people are fit for anything, you know? <laughs> so you can't, you can't make anything up. Anything you've put in a story will have happened somewhere in the world. But you have to draw on 
the people and the things around you and, the, and, and what happens around you. I always quite come to being. I turned the radio on once driving from Dublin and it seemed as though he was talking straight to me. He was just saying to somebody in radio, you have to use your friends' lives and your family's lives and you have to be ruthless and you have to plunder people's lives all the time for your fiction and you have to feel no guilt about it. It's so true. Mm. I know that if I sit anywhere, especially people's mannerisms, so if I'm yeah. describing a character and when people talk to me about my name is Leon, one of the first questions people say to me is, is he a real boy? And of course, he isn't a real boy, it's fiction, but he's lots of real boys. He's lots of children that that happens to every day. Well, he's very real in my house because um, that novel almost caused trouble in my marriage because, <laughs> because Anne-Marie was so in love with Leon and she was so upset about it. And she got, and she got so completely enmeshed in the story in that book and started to say things like, Kit the Val is it's the greatest book I've ever, ever read in my life. <laughs> Kit the Val is just a genius. And I started to get really jealous. I was seething with jealousy. <laughs> I did read the book, of course, and in realize she was right. But, like, but that's the thing. I mean, he just, that, that child comes so to life. I mean, it's just incredible. And that's the thing. I mean, I, I do believe that some writers press on with a book even when they don't believe their own characters. And you can kind of see it in the finished product, which can be a really good book and a great story and something really gripping. But just, just this, that kind of dimension... Of, of, of realness isn't there because of the belief not being there. It's so true. I love all of my characters, even the ones that people say, oh, that's a horrible, that's a horrible character. Like Carl, somebody said mm. to me about Carl in The Trick to Time, he's horrible. And I was like, he's not horrible. He's a completely believable, lovely man trying yeah. to live his mm. life the best way. He's pulling a bit of a fast one. Over Mona, but it's not much. I, I'm the same. People say to me all the time, "Pop in my new yes. book." I think Pop is fantastic, and people, some people just absolutely detest Pop. I can see why. Okay, I can see why people can just get offended by the things the characters say and do. But how could you not love that man? And I think that's why we'll always have fiction in all its forms. I mean, people will always watch films and watch TV shows and read books because we'll always be fascinated by what we are. I think the world is grey and people are grey, but we are. Most of us, you know, not clean, not squeaky clean. Yeah, because people are, are almost never binary. I think there probably is a tiny, tiny proportion of, of humans who actually are either completely evil or, yes. com or completely incapable of, of any evil act. Yes. But I think, you know, you're into the, the micro percentage. So, Donald, I love Pop. Do you want to just read something about him from your book? So at this point in the story, Pop, whose name is Dixie, um, is thinking about his relationship with his grandson Lempy, how much he loves him and how hard it is for them to communicate. There were nights the boy stayed out. Dixie couldn't sleep those nights. He'd sit up in bed and turn the radio on low, or sometimes he'd read his books, and sometimes the words would swim on the page. And he'd steady himself, and he'd slow his breathing down, and he'd imagine the panic that rose inside him to be rising water against the lock gate. And he'd picture the wheel of the lock gate being turned. And he'd imagine the flow through the lock, the downward easing, the levelling. That was a trick he taught himself. Smart fuckers charged fortunes for that kind of shite. Some nights, the boy would arrive in ragged and cut from drink in the small hours. And he'd stamp around the kitchen making toast or what have you. And the sound of him home was a blessed sound. And once or twice he'd caught himself, standing at the foot of the stairs in his pyjamas and slippers and dressing gown, just standing there, 
looking in through the half-open door to the kitchen, looking at his grandson sitting at the table eating toast, the way a man might look at a child in a cradle, a soft man given to womanly emotions. And he'd catch himself admiring him, the strong jaw of him, the fine thick head of hair, the good-sized hands, and he'd catch himself thanking God for him, for delivering him home from the cold night, but he could never convert his love to words. He longed to hold the boy the way he used to, to fold him into himself, to hold him hard against him, saying, my boy, my boy. Donald, do you think there are voices in Ireland at the moment and in Irish writing that we're not hearing? For sure. I mean, there's a wealth of stories waiting to be told that aren't being told. There's a book just published recently called This Hostile Life by Milatu Uche Okori, which um, is based on her experience of direct provision. Can you imagine the journeys people have made to end up in direct provision in Ireland? What's happened in their lives? The stories they have to tell about the journey to Ireland, what's happened to them since. I mean, I, I came across this you know, because for 10 years I worked um, as a labour inspector and so I worked with migrants all the time who had made these kinds of journeys. Uh, but I always just got fragments and scraps here and there. And I met people in Ireland who weren't in direct provision, who were in Ireland Ill- illegally, who had no status at all in the world. They had no passports, they had no visas, they had no documentation, they had nothing to prove who they were, where they were from, what their stories were. And they were almost always really warm, and welcoming people and fun-loving. They would tell you certain things. And because I was a government inspector, they wouldn't tell me, you know, the main things. And it just struck me that there were these voices, a multitude of voices that weren't being heard. There there are people who actually aren't counted on census, you know, in in the census. They don't actually exist anywhere. Is that where you got the character for Farouk from? Yeah, I mean, he's not quite a composite character because his story was based, the actual story was based on a story I read in The Guardian, but the story was very similar to thousands of other stories you would read but his experience was kind of based on what I knew people had experienced because we all know these things and there are things that are easy enough to push aside because there are so many voiceless people but I mean we have minorities we always had minorities in Ireland you know there are very few travellers I mean there's Rosalie McDonough and a few more great writers but there isn't much um, fiction being produced among travellers and that's changing as well and it's great. What do you think has to change so that we can hear more of these different stories, these hidden voices, these marginalised voices? What do you think we have to do? Well, you see people actively and, you know, kind of heroically curating. Like John Connors is curating traveller stories at the moment, or he was in a way recently. And he was going to different people in the traveller community and actually getting them to tell their stories, just as Singh did. And Yeats, you know, they went to the west of Ireland to get the, the, the folklore and the fables. And I mean, these, you, sometimes you have to draw these things out. Yes. And I think for, for me, the, some of the work I'm doing with working class writing in Great Britain is to find a platform to get these stories out because people are surprised that these stories exist. Or as somebody said to me when I was putting Common People together, that's the book I'm editing on working class memoir, they said, surely... If these people were good writers, they'd already be published. But you and I know the barriers that yeah, there are. It's nearly impossible to get published. Exactly. There's, it's not, oh, if you're a good writer, you get your book published. That's just not how it mm. works. There's so much about contacts. Obviously, there is also the self-belief narrative, which you have to have and you have to 
get used to rejection and you have to get used to sending your stuff out. But over and above that, there are so many hurdles for marginalised writers in having their story appreciated. Yeah, and I mean, and we're all, everyone who writes or tells the stories in some way contributing to the, to the human record. And, you know, people describing how things happened and how it felt when that thing happened and, and the way things happened. It's so important. I mean, stories, as unnatural as they are and the order of things universally, are so important to us. And it'd be, it's, it's such a shame. I mean, you know, you, there's a real feeling of lives being lived unrecorded, silently, unshared. Yes. When you are writing your story, so when you, you start having an idea... Do you share that with anyone at the beginning or would you be keeping that to yourself until it's more formulated? Mm. I always discuss my ideas with Anne-Marie because she, I, I find they become kind of real. And I always make a really, I always, I mean, even now when I try to describe to somebody a book I've written that's been published, that's out in the world, you know, and it's, you know, people have read and somebody goes, what's your book about? I, 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 I'm incapable of making my books sound interesting. And so when I tell Anne-Marie, and I see him working on she'll always go, God, this is, that's not much of an idea, really. <laughs> <laughs> and, but then I'm forced to make the idea better, you know, and to, and, to, and to kind of reveal it more clearly to myself when I try to tell her about it. And would you use somebody to say, for example, with, when I'm writing, I, my brother's a screenwriter, so I will say to my brother, OK, I want this person to get into a car and be really distressed but have to drive. How would you see that? And so we will talk about the mechanics, literally what the body would do, what the head would be looking at and all that kind of stuff because he's got a great eye for visuals. And then I'd go away and write it. So I'll use him for mechanically how to construct a scene. Um, and then I only really give anything to someone to read when I want praise. You know when you want praise because you think <laughs> I've done such a great scene here. I need my brother to say to me, that is a work of genius. And so I'll give it to him and I'll stand over him with my arms crossed, waiting for the payoff. You know, either he's going to laugh or go, ah, or whatever. But I have to have that response from him. Otherwise, I think I've failed. Yeah. I, I watch him. I watch his eyes go down the page to get to the bit where I know I've done a good job. Yeah, I do the exact same thing. And I, I, even though I'm telling myself I want Emery to critique this and to advise me, I really just <laughs> wanted to say... This is unbelievable. I wonder if you could cry or laugh or tell me I'm brilliant. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> it's it's praise that I'm after, basically. It's been great talking to you, Donald. Thank you so much. Kit, you're one of the writing heroes, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Donald Ryan's latest book, From a Low and Quiet Sea, is published by Doubleday.